Hello, GradCast listeners. If you like our show and want to come hang out with us, come on out to our trivia event on September 19th, 7 p.m. at the Grad Club on Western Campus. The theme is Netflix and chill, so study up on your favorite shows and movies, and we'll see you there. Hello, and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Brittany Melton. And I'm your co-host, Laura Munoz. And today we are here with Amelie Hutchinson, a PhD student in biology. Amelie, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. I need to start by saying, before we even ask a question, about the absolute pleasure it is for me and Laura to get to interview you as our new GradCast Managing Editor. How special is this? Well, thank you. <laughs> it's, it's fun. It's fun to be on this side of things. Like normally I'm, I'm the one interviewing. So I'm, it's kind of all about me this time. <laughs> Absolutely. We're here for you today. Um, yeah. And so I know you've been on the podcast before, uh, but I'm wondering if maybe for those of you, for those of us who maybe haven't heard that episode, if you would mind going back over a little bit of your master's research. Yeah, of course. So I finished my master's in December, 2021. So just a couple months ago. And what I was doing was animal physiology in the biology department, and I was looking at hibernation and specifically what mitochondria are doing in hibernation, because everyone knows mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell. (laughs) And it's true, they are. They produce most of the energy that we use. And so in the context of hibernation, we have kind of the opposite happening where everything slows down and they want to use as, as little energy as possible because they need to save that energy to survive the winter. And so I was looking at ground squirrels and what they do is they suppress their mitochondria and they make them slow down. And that's the place in the cell uh, where they save the most energy is by slowing down those mitochondria. And so I was looking at specific enzymes in the mitochondria and how they interact and seeing if those interactions changed to slow down that energy formation. And so uh, I found some kind of interesting things. I had that paper published in January. So that was really exciting uh, to get a paper published. And then I switched straight into my PhD in January, and that's where I've been since. So for your PhD, can you tell us a little bit, because I, I know you're working on something similar, but it's not exactly the same. So can you give us an overview of how it works? Yes. So for my PhD, I'm doing something similar. I'm still working in the mitochondria, but this time I'm using a different model. So I'm looking at birds this time, because at the start of the pandemic, I started getting into birding. And uh, so birding is different from bird watching because it's more active and you're going out into the woods and you're actively looking for birds. And so I started getting really interested in birds in my personal life and, and birding became my favorite thing to do. And so when I wrapped up my master's, I was like, all right, this hibernation thing is interesting. These mitochondria are interesting, but I wanna pull in my now other passion, which is birds. And so Western is lucky to have this amazing uh, advanced facility for avian research on campus, one of the best facilities in Canada for studying birds. And so I uh, got another supervisor. So now I'm co-supervised by two uh, really great scientists. And I started doing this work in birds. And so I'm looking at hummingbird mitochondria because they use this really interesting phenotype called torpor to survive cold nights. And that's when similar to hibernation, Uh, They turn down their oxygen consumption, their body temperature to survive that cold night because hummingbirds are so small. So that is what I've been doing for the last couple of months. Wait, I need to uh, go back a little because I 
used to think that birds migrated. Like I didn't know birds were able to hibernate. So uh, how is it? Which birds hibernate or do all of them hibernate or like can they, can they decide whether to hibernate or migrate? And especially for hummingbirds, do they all migrate or do they all um, hibernate or both? <laughs> how, how does it yes. work? Okay, this is a great question. So uh, in general, all animals, they can pick one of, well, they don't really pick it, they've evolved it, but there's one of three strategies to survive winter. So one is migration. They can just get the heck out and they can go somewhere warmer where the uh, conditions are favorable. Not all animals can do this because maybe they're a squirrel and they have short little legs and they can't really get anywhere. So what they can do instead is either stay active. So they keep eating like crazy. Uh, they store up food so that they can just maintain their body temperature and they stay active all winter. Uh, so we have some animals that do this and we have some birds that do this, or you can hibernate. And so those are ones where they don't really have a lot of potential for staying active because they're really small or they don't really store food really well. And so they, they hibernate by storing energy in the form of body fat in their, in their bodies and they survive off of that all winter. So birds are kind of a special case because they do a bit of all three of those. So a lot of birds migrate and so they just leave. So that's why a lot of the spring favorites that we see are not here in the winter. Uh, and some birds stay here all winter. Like you've probably seen cardinals and chickadees and dark-eyed juncos just hanging out all winter and they seem to be doing fine. Uh, and so they kind of do a mix of those two strategies, but some birds use torpor at night. And so this is kind of like, it's not really hibernation because it occurs on a shorter time scale. Hibernation is a seasonal thing, whereas torpor is just any time you lower your body temperature and your energy to save uh, fuel overnight. And so what hummingbirds do is they actually do migrate, but when they come back here, they still can experience cold nights, especially if they arrive in the spring, because April, when they, the very first ones start to arrive, April, May, it still does get pretty cold at night. The average nightly temperature in the end of April is about 10 degrees. And so that is still a challenge for these tiny little birds. They only weigh like 2.5 grams. And so they'll use torpor to survive cold nights. So they're migrators and torpor users, which is pretty cool. Actually, I should, oh, sorry, I'll just add one more thing. There is actually one bird that is known to hibernate, the common poor will, but it's kind of a weird example and no one knows a whole lot about it, but there is one bird that will use torpor for a longer time uh, in the colder months. So there's one hibernating bird. Hummingbirds don't exactly hibernate, but they definitely use torpor. Amelie, it's so interesting hearing you talk about this because not only are you actually super knowledgeable about your own topic, which is this hyper-specific single bird but it's also every single bird and then also most most little animals which is very like this is super broad however I'm kind of curious and as a birder I'm hoping you may know this where do hummingbirds go in the winter like where are they off to they get the heck out where do they go yeah so they go to the south and so the species that I'm looking at they kind of go all the way to South America and so all birds, all migrant birds are either short distance migrants or long distance migrants. And so the short ones will, could just go to the Southern United States. You can see your, your favorites in Florida, or they'll keep going and go all the way to South America to the Caribbean. And so it gets really packed there in the winter because all the birds are going there. And so if you travel there in the winter, you can actually see amazing biodiversity. But then that's kind of why they come back is because it is so crowded there because it's harder to find food when you have that much competition. And so that's kind of why they go and, and why they come back. 
that leads me to this to my next question and i know we have to enter into hibernation but like i'm just so curious about these hummingbirds because i understand that they feed on nectar right is that correct yeah yeah so when they come back there are no flowers like april no flowers yet so like they just arrive from a really long long flight all the way from the south they get here they're like I, i am imagining they don't have much energy but there are also no flowers. So how can they survive if there? No energy and so tiny and so tired. Yeah, that's a really good question. So I guess in April, only the very first few are coming back. Most of them do come back in later May and June. And the flowers are starting to come out in May. April showers bring May flowers. <laughs> and so you can get a couple more there. Uh, they, they also eat insects. And so uh, in the lab, hummingbirds are commonly fed on nectar and fruit flies. And so they do eat small flying insects as well. But yeah, by the time the bulk of the hummingbirds come back, it is in May when, when the flowers are out. But yeah, that's a good question. And it's especially hard for them to find food. So if you have hummingbird feeders, it, you can put them out as early as April, because then those first few hummingbirds will definitely come to them. I'm going to tell my mom that she has a hummingbird feeder and is always mad. She's like, there's no hummingbirds. There's never hummingbirds. I'll tell her, get, get after early. Yep. And that was my summer <laughs> because I was catching hummingbirds and waiting and waiting for them to come. And I didn't see my first, the first hummingbird that I saw come to my feeder. Again, I wasn't there constantly, but I was there at least two or three hours every day. Uh, was June 20th. And so it does take a while for them to come. I'm not sure if they were using the feeder earlier than that, but I, I know the struggle of waiting for the hummingbirds to come to the feeder. Actually, I listened somewhere that you shouldn't put like hummingbird feeders because like they're great, like they're important pollinators. And if they don't have to use the flower, then they won't pull, like they won't play their role. So you'll have le less flowers next time because they will start getting dependent on your feeder. Is that true? Uh, not exactly. So birds, uh, it's okay. usually pretty safe to feed them. Like I know like birds feed on a lot of bird seed from feeders as well. And they don't become dependent on it the same way that a mammal would just because they use so many different foraging locations. And so the hummingbird feeder, uh, hummingbirds typically visit hummingbird feeders, at least this is what I've observed, between every six to 10 minutes. But in, in between those six to 10 minutes, they're visiting hundreds of other flowers too. And so it'll definitely supplement their diet. It'll probably help the hummingbird population. I don't think it'll, it'll hurt the, the flower population because again, there are a lot of other bugs that are also contributing to it as well. And so it's the same with just regular feeders with bird seed. You'll think, oh no, the birds will become dependent on my feeder. And then if I take it away, what's gonna happen to them? That's usually not the case. They find food in, in many, many locations. Yeah. Good to know. And so, okay, so you're out, you're catching hummingbirds. You're doing this yourself. So I'm assuming that like, as they migrate, because we talked, actually, Amelie, you and I talked to your colleague, Soren, about the geese. Mm -hmm. And so, but now, so like, so you're going out for migratory birds and you're getting them and then doing, like running some tests on them and then releasing them again. Is this how, is this your process? Yes. So I catch them in the summer months. So I'm interested in not so much migration, but more what they're doing at night in the summer. So I set up traps uh, around campus. And so I had two locations and I would wait for them to come. And yep, I would catch them in a trap door kind of contraption. So I had a hummingbird feeder inside a cage with a flap door with a fishing line attached to it that I would string to my lawn chair 
inside my deer blind tent and I would sit there and wait for the hummingbird to enter the feeder and then I'd pull the stake and the door would drop and then I would then I have it and then yeah they spent a couple days in the lab with me and then I was said okay thank you hummingbird and then I caught another one (laughs) so what do you do with them on the lab yes so uh, I am interested in torpor And so what I was looking at is their mitochondria, but also uh, their just other full body respiration. And so I had a flow through respirometry system where I would put the hummingbird into a mason jar with a little perch and air would go in and air would come out. And in that outcoming air, I would measure how much oxygen had been used and how much CO2 was produced. And those two things can, they can tell me a lot of measurements about what's happening within the bird. And so I did that when the birds were at normal temperature and I did that when they were in torpor. And so when they were in torpor, I put them inside a big incubator that was at 10 degrees Celsius. And I'd put the bird in there at sunset and I would wait for it to go into torpor, which sometimes took (laughs) like two or three hours. And so I'm sitting there in the lab at night waiting for my experiment to start. And then when the bird entered torpor, I was like, that's great. I, the air was keep going through the system. I keep measuring the oxygen and the CO2. And then I would take the bird out and I would take a couple uh, samples of their tissue to isolate mitochondria from them. And then with that, uh, I put the mitochondria into a high resolution respirometer. So our Ouroboros oxygraph. And then that could tell me how much the mitochondria themselves were respiring. So how much oxygen they were producing. And so that's what I did. Most of it was at night. Some of it was in the day. (laughs) And I I just finished collecting that data. I had my last one this weekend. So I am excited that that part is over. (laughs) I'm excited to analyze those results and and see what happens, if there are differences between the two groups. Now, just like a tiny question, I wanted to know how do you make them enter enter torpor? Like, do they go into torpor naturally or do you put like very cold temperatures how does it work yeah that's a good question and so they do go into torpor naturally it happens outside it's a facultative torpor and so there are two types of torpor there's obligate and facultative and so hibernators like the ground squirrels i was doing uh, my research with for my masters they were obligate hibernators and so every season no matter how much food they had no matter what the temperature was outside they would go into torpor every single time. Whereas hummingbirds are facultative torpor users or facultative daily heterotherms. And so they only use torpor when they have to because using torpor is risky. If you're sitting there in a ball with your body temperature lowered, you can't really fly. They can't fly at all when they're in torpor. If a predator comes along, they're kind of, they don't, (laughs) they can't get away. They're stuck there. And so they only use it when they have to, when the benefits outweigh the costs. And so they'll use it when it gets cold, when they haven't had enough food uh, and when they're migrating, they use torpor as well to save energy so that they can spend that energy when they're flying the next day. And so that does happen naturally. I kind of encouraged it in the lab by providing the conditions that make torpor happen. So they did a little fast before sunset. So I'd remove their food a couple hours before uh, I began the experiment, which was fine, they can handle that. And then again, in the incubator, it was 10 degrees in there. And so those are all conditions where using torpor is very beneficial for them. And so uh, I had all my birds do that, except for one, (laughs) one stuck it out until 2 a.m. And then I said, okay, you're not going into torpor. And I put him back into his cage and then tried again the next day. So they, they all did it. And it, it, they usually enter torpor within an hour of after sunset. Interesting. And so 
I'm trying to just get a, like, as someone who's coming from the humanities, I'm trying to get a wrap on, like, what you're doing in the lab every day. So, like, how many, I mean, if this is allowed to be shared, how many birds did you have to, like, pull in through your little trap? Yeah, so I had a permit for up to 20 birds, but I ended up getting all my, uh, all my data from just 14. And so I had kind of seven in each group. And then so it seems like, oh, 14 birds, that's not that bad. It ended up taking me two and a half months to get all of that because I found that I had about a 50% trapping success. So half the days I went out to try and trap one, the birds just weren't there. They were somewhere else eating those other flowers nearby. And so it, it took a while and then I had to keep them in the lab. I would have to uh, plan a day to do the overnight experiment, plan a day to do the daytime one. So I got all that wrapped up in yeah, about two months. Okay. So if I understand correctly, what you were doing is you're trying to check how the mitochondria is working mm -hmm. by measuring CO2 and oxygen. So my question is, what are you expecting to get? Like, are, do you think that during torpor mitochondria will produce less oxygen or what do you think uh, is happening there? Yes, great question. And so my hypothesis was that like mammals who suppress their mitochondrial activity, so they're consuming less oxygen during their torpor phase, that the hummingbirds would do that too. And so no one has looked at what, what mitochondria are doing in hummingbirds during torpor. I was the first one to do that. So that's kind of interesting. And so I expected them to uh, consume less oxygen when they were torpid compared to when they were active. And I did that by isolating the mitochondria, putting them into the machine, and then giving them uh, different fuel sources. And so like us, we can eat fat, we can eat sugar. And so that's what I gave to the mitochondria and said, okay, here you go, mitochondria, see how much oxygen you consume when you're given this much substrate and you're in this machine. And so I found that I didn't find exactly that, uh, I found that the hummingbird mitochondria were pretty robust. And even when they were in torpor, they were still uh, really active. Hummingbirds have some of the most active mitochondria in on earth because they're so small and they hover, they're they're tiny, they need really high body temperatures. And so hummingbirds have really powerful mitochondria. So I didn't see exactly that. Uh, interestingly, when they were rewarming from torpor, their mitochondria were even higher than that. And so I think that is going to be another thing to explore. So uh, my hypothesis wasn't exactly supported, but it did uh, ask some other questions that I'm going to be looking at maybe next summer and in the coming months when I analyze all this data. That's interesting. So for now, your research is confined to when the hummingbirds come to you, unless you, I guess, unless you decide to make a trip to South America in a desperate attempt to like get some, get some data. Yeah. Uh, then <laughs> otherwise you, otherwise it's kind of like a, get some data, analyze the data and decide if you want to do more analysis, like do more data collection next summer, right? Is that where you're kind of at right yeah, now? Yeah. So that, that is the nature of studying animals is that we have a field season. And so unless you have a breeding colony in the lab where you, you have those animals all the time. So a lot of people, they'll study fish or they'll study insects or they'll, I don't know, study plants. And so they can maintain them in the lab. So you have your population with you all year. You can decide when to do your experiments. That's also one of the really handy things about using mice. That's why a lot of scientists use mice is because you can keep them in the lab for extended periods of time. Whereas a lot of people who study birds have just one field season. So they don't typically keep birds year round. And you wanna look at them in the, their one state because birds have a wintering phenotype, a, a breeding one and a migration one. And they're all very different and they, you kind of want them to be as natural as possible. 
And so, yeah, I have like one field season where I have to get all my work done in that season. And then if I don't, I got to wait until the next year. So I still have lots to do in the, in the downtime, if you could call it that. Um, I collected some tissue samples and I have some frozen mitochondria. So I'm going to do some experiments with that. And then I guess I can use the time to write it all up, plan the next experiment, do my proposal assessment. <laughs> but yeah, I'm going to have to uh, do another field season next summer. For everyone listening, I want them to know that during summertime, like most of grad students have like a more relaxed time. But Emily was was like, no, this was my busy time. Like I was working really hard. But like, I know you have enough work, but I will suggest being from Colombia, where we have a hummingbird, hummingbird sanctuary that I visited and it's beautiful. <laughs> Because I I'm wondering if there are like different phenotypes on the mitochondria for humming hummingbird species that don't need to hibernate so I guess like I don't know much about hummingbirds but I, I will imagine that if I'm a hummingbird and I'm in Colombia I wouldn't migrate because I have flowers all the year <laughs> so I will like stay there so I, I wonder if their mitochondria has like the same patterns because they are still very active like hummingbirds are like they're basically the most active like things that I've seen in nature so I will wonder if their phenotype their mitochondria changes between species that migrate or species that don't migrate or don't need to even go to torpor because they have the same temperature all year round yes uh that's a great question and uh so my supervisor and I actually talked about that like what if I went to where the hummingbirds are in the summer and then and measured the same things that I'm doing now, but instead there. And so I'm I'm very interested in doing something like that. I'd love to have a nice tropical vacation in the middle of the winter where I also get to do science. So yeah, there's this cool <laughs> Smithsonian Institute for Biology. I think that's what it's called in Panama. And so maybe in the future, I'll get to go there. We require a travel grant, but that would be really interesting. The other thing that might be cool is do they hibernate or that are they able to use torpor? Uh, when in the summer, like maybe uh, it's it's facultative, so they use it when they need to when they're here in the summer. But when they're there in the winter, where it's always warm, could they even still enter torpor? Like, what if I put them into the incubator, put it to 10 degrees, and they just couldn't do it? And so that would be really cool, like a seasonal control of of daily hibernation. I can see the paper now. <laughs> That's amazing <laughs> because actually, the hummingbird sanctuary that I visited in, in Colombia is in the mountains. So those mm -hmm. are places that during night, they can get really cold, like maybe five yes. degrees or maybe 10 degrees. That for us Colombian, that's freezing. <laughs> that's so, so cold. <laughs> But like, I can imagine that if they like evolutionary, uh, uh, like have this trait, then those mm -hmm. species could have it as well. That will be yes. so cool. Yeah. Okay. So those ones do. So I've, I've read several papers where those like mountain hummingbirds do use torpor at night. And so that would be really cool. It would also be cool to see if the ones that are here, if they also do it when they're there as well, because five degrees is cold for hummingbirds as well. Like for them, that is really as cold as it gets. They don't want to be any colder than that. So yeah, it, that would be really cool. A hummingbird sanctuary sounds amazing. I really want to go there. Now, Amelie, I have some uh, questions that could be like more about, about methodology because I'm wondering which variables can you account for? For example, age. So can you make sure that all of your birds are the same age or sex? 
like I don't know if a female or a male hummingbird <laughs> consume different levels of energy or uh, these type of things. I don't know how long they live. Uh, and so I, I, I am wondering if you have any way of tracking the same birds over different periods of time to see if their mitochondria has changed. Because I understand that you want to describe how their mitochondria work, but you can you only have one point in time so far. So will you want to collect different samples for the same bird or how is that going to work? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. So uh, how old the birds are, I have, I can't tell. I can tell if they're the young of the year. So if those birds have been born this spring, so hummingbirds have multiple clutches of eggs. And so the very first ones that are born in the summer uh, will become adult. They all grow up to be old enough to migrate at the end of the summer. And so I caught a couple juveniles and I was like, okay, let's try it with them. And they use torpor as well. Uh, I caught males and females and they both did as well. Uh, when I do my stats, I'm going to include sex in the, in the model to see if there's a difference there. Uh, there, there are actually a lot of variables, so like body size is one I'm going to have to account for, uh, how long they're in captivity, because they're known to use torpor more frequently if, if you keep them for longer. So it would be cool to take multiple samples from the same bird. I think it would be a bit hard on them. Uh, you don't want to take too many tissue samples from the same individual. It kind of goes for all animals in science. So that would be cool. I don't know if it's feasible. Uh, but I definitely tried to take a, a wide range of samples. I did. I tried to do as many males as I did females. I got the two juveniles. I'll compare them as well. But that is a great question. Yeah, so I was looking at their flight muscle. And so hummingbirds, which would kind of be analysis, analogous to our pec. So our pectoralis, they have one too. And so that's the main one that flaps the wings. And so they're basically flying pecs. <laughs> because if you look on the inside of them, it's just an entire, almost an entire muscle and then their tiny little organs are in there too. And so I was looking at that one because it's the major consumer of oxygen for their body. They just have this really giant muscle that helps them to fly. It would also be interesting to look at liver and heart, but again, they're, those are really tiny. So it's much easier to do the, the larger flight muscle. One sample and you kill them, poor thing. <laughs> they're so tiny. They're very tiny, yep. This has gone a very interesting direction. Um, but I want to bring it back to the general for my last question, which is, Amelie, I've heard you ask this question to other people when we've done <laughs> interviews together. If you got to give advice to an undergrad who was considering taking on a PhD in biology, maybe in birds, what, what advice would you give them? That's a great question. And I like asking other people this because sometimes I don't know <laughs> what advice I would give, but now I'll think of one. Uh, I would say... Make sure that you remind yourself that you deserve to be here and that if you apply and you get in and you have a meeting with your supervisor and they say, okay, you're going to do this project, you deserve to be there. So never think to yourself, oh, I just barely got in. Everyone else around me is so amazing and so great. No, that's not true. You are, you fit in, you're going to do this. <laughs> and so it's hard. And there are going to be times where you think, oh no, everyone's project is going great and mine is going horribly, but it's just it's just not true and if you just keep working and get help from the people around you I've struggled with things and then realized that there was an easy answer had I just asked a friend or my supervisor right away so that would be my advice you deserve to be here and uh, just keep pushing through and you'll make it and from you I've learned the importance of doing something that you care and you're passionate about because 
I wouldn't imagine me being uh, uh, awake at 2 a.m. waiting for a bird to go into torpor. Someone who cares do that. Like, otherwise, you'll like, there's no way. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's a piece of advice number two. Never evaluate your life choices at 2 a.m. <laughs> because at 2 a.m., I also find myself saying, why do I care about this? Why can't I go home? I want to sleep. But then the next day, uh, after I've had a couple hours rest, I think, okay, no, I do want to do this. I am interested. <laughs> but 2 a.m. is a bad time to, to rethink your life. Oh, my goodness. That's good advice. <laughs> if you're working at 2 a.m., don't think about your no, life. Just get just do what you're doing and then go, go home and go to bed. <laughs> That's perfect. And with that, we'll wrap it up. So this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Brittany Melton, and my co-host was Laura Funos Bayana. We've been speaking with Amelie Hutchinson. This episode was produced by Laura Munoz Bayana. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at GradCast Radio. To listen to us, we're on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can find us on all find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select episodes have been published to YouTube at GradCast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a great night.